The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And I guess, believe it or not, we've done over 200 episodes of this show. And this is one of the most disturbing cases um, that I think that we'll ever talk about on the show. And, and actually, as a connection, because I remember this case, I'm from the Cleveland area, and it was from Akron, Ohio, that this happened. And certainly, the very kind of cousin city, so we get a lot of the Akron news. And I remember when it happened, and just... Exceptionally sad. And not only is it one of the saddest cases, but we've actually got one of the most esteemed guests that we could possibly have. I'm talking about Carol Costello. Uh, she is our guest today, and she is an award-winning television journalist. I'm guessing many of you are familiar with that name. And today we're going to talk about Blind Rage, her podcast on a heartbreaking case that she covered in the early years of her career. In 2001, Carol joined CNN as an anchor on Headline News. She later hosted Daybreak. From 2012 to 2018, she anchored Newsroom. She also sub-anchored and was a political reporter for the Situation Room in addition to her work on a number of CNN and HLM productions. At CNN, she was part of Peabody Award-winning coverage of stories like the Gulf oil spill, Hurricane Katrina, and a host of the biggest stories on the planet. She's covered multiple presidential elections and inaugurations. She's also interviewed four U.S. presidents, four U.S. presidents. Amazing. And before joining CNN, Carol worked for a number of local television outlets. She's currently a special advisor and a journalism lecturer at Loyola Marymount University. We're so honored to have her as our guest. Carol, welcome to the program today. Oh, thank you. That was such a nice introduction. You appreciate that. I'm exhausted. And I'm a little conscious (laughs) because I'm reading off of a prompter and I'm like, she's grading me. She's grading me. Uh, So anyway. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) Well, I I, I hate to say it, but I think that that's where the laughter begins and ends with this particular episode. Because really, this case that we're going to talk about is one of the most disturbing things. And only when I started to look back and say, okay, what are we doing? What is this podcast about? I realized I remembered this case from when it happened. It was so, so disturbing. So can you tell us a little bit about the case that you talk about in Blind Rage? Yes, it, it was a case that happened in, on March 20th in 1984. Uh, it involves a woman named Phyllis Cottle, and she was carjacked at work in broad daylight on a busy intersection. Some people saw her being abducted, didn't do anything, and she endured an hours-long ordeal that is was difficult for me to describe in the podcast because it is so brutal what happened to this woman. Um, I was always fascinated by this case because she found the will to survive, where I think that many people would have just wanted to die, but not Phyllis. Phyllis was, I just can't describe how amazing and courageous she was through her life and how she not only survived this crime, but she found ways um, for it to make her life better. It, I, I just, it's just always astounded me, this case. Um, 
and I, uh, people need to listen to the podcast. I don't want to give too much away, but what, what makes this doubly disturbing is not only was she carjacked and raped, she was also blinded. And I, how does someone deal with that? I mean, how, I mean, aside from losing the vision to, to even know that somebody is capable of doing that to someone, it just, it just, uh, it, it boggles the mind. I don't know what to say because I don't know what to say. I know it's, um, you know, in a lot of people's minds, it's the very worst thing that can happen to you, even worse than rape. I think for a time that Phyllis felt that way too, but I think that through her life, she found ways to, I don't know, it's just, you have to listen to the podcast. I don't want to give too much away, but she found ways to make her blindness uh, pay off for her in positive ways. Um, It it, it was very interesting to me though, um, how police solved this case. Like, how would you investigate this case when you have a victim who can't see, right? Um, sure. You have to sort of treat it like like a murder because the victim can't see a photo array. She can't identify a suspect in court. Um, she can't do the police lineup thing. She can't show police where he took her um, because she can't point to things and say, this was that and that was this. And it made things very difficult for police. I wanted to take a step back and talk about you and why you decided to uh, enter the the world of podcasting, and then we can talk about why this case, because you have a personal connection to it. But in terms of, I mean, I read your bio, and I I cut a lot out, (laughs) because I thought, (laughs) this is running too long anyway. If I leave everything in, that'll be the whole podcast, because you've done so much. I mean, and just to see your face, I mean, very familiar, and and, and folks, this audio podcast, but if people saw your face, oh, I know who that is. Uh, And of course, your name's familiar as well. You've done so much. Of all the different things that you've done why why did you decide to get into the world of podcasting because there's a lot of people who come at this from an amateur angle um you know and and i think sometimes i think this is getting away from this but one point it's like oh a podcast uh you know maybe not looked on uh, that highly although uh, there's some fantastic uh, very journalistic podcast out there why did you decide with all of your experience yeah i think i'm going to take this podcasting thing on I love podcasting because it's such an intimate medium. I mean, you really get to know your listeners. Your listeners really get to know you. You can share things that are personal and maybe not be judged. I really like that about podcasting. Um, This case was so special to me because I covered it as a young reporter. It was my first big story. I was really desperate to be taken seriously back in 1984 because people didn't take women journalists seriously back then. So I wanted to cover crime. And I I didn't know how that would psychologically affect me, especially a case like Phyllis's. Um, You know, you you go into news and, you know, you have your college education and you learn stuff in college, but they never prepare you for the psychological aspect of it. Um, I would say... And this sounds so stupid, but I would say that Phyllis's case traumatized me in a way, and it took me a long time to get over it. And I've always wondered about that. It always stuck with me because um, I think they should teach young journalists in school to deal with those kinds of things. 
uh, not only would it help the journalist, but it would help the people that you're interviewing. Because to interview someone, um, when the very worst has happened to them, it's intimidating, right? Um, to me, I found it intimidating, scary. I, I felt intrusive and like a vulture, but it was part of my job. And some victims really want to talk. So I'm not going to poo-poo and say that we never should interview victims because I don't believe that. But I do believe that um, universities should prepare young journalists better for those kinds of things. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because I have a friend, um, I have multiple people I know, but one in particular who works on local news. And in talking to him, and I think he's been in the business for 25 years, so he's seen a lot. And that was one of the things that he said is that, you know, it does take a toll day after day going out to crime scenes and seeing you know, um, reporting on murders and these horrible things. And you don't really think about that. You think about it with doctors, nurses, uh, people who go off to war and not saying that it's the same as going off to war, but there can be a lot of trauma. And I never even, and it, I went to school for broadcasting, but I, it was never approached to me in any way. I graduated in the early 90s. It was never, nothing like that was ever mentioned to me. And I really never thought about it, but particularly in local news where you're seeing a lot of crime from day to day to day, because that's a lot of what they report on, you know, even, and I'm not comparing the journalist's plight to what happened to this woman, but still it's right. something. No, and I think that a lot of times reporters get bad raps because, you know, people just assume that we're all insensitive and that's not true. Um, some of us are. I mean, there are bad apples in every profession, and journalism is no exception. Um, but I think that, you know, you see so much, especially when you cover crime, that you become, gosh, it, it doesn't affect you like it should after a while. You become numb to it. And that is really not good, because when you become numb to it is the time you become insensitive. And you say things you normally wouldn't. So I would say that not only should they teach this sort of stuff at school, um, reporters should every so often, like, you know, go talk to someone. So you won't become numb or insensitive. And you can really, like, truly empathize with people as you should as a good reporter. What was that like for you when you were young? You know, a very young reporter. You're still young, but I mean a very young reporter. <laughs> Um, yeah, when I covered Phyllis Cottle, I was 22 years yeah, old. Yeah, I mean, that had to be just, regardless of how much of an armor you tried to build up in that short amount of time, that just had to be like a, a blow to the solar plexus, right? Well, you know, it's really interesting because um, when you're in a newsroom, you just want to be tough because you have to be tough because the job is tough. The people around you are tough. You don't want to look wimpy because right. that's not a great reporter. Reporters do a lot of things that are dicey and you have to make your boss believe that you can, you are capable in handling that. Um, on the other hand, as a 22 year old reporter, you know that evil walks the earth because you've heard it. But when you see it for yourself firsthand, that's something different, right? At the same time, I realized that in covering Phyllis's case, but then when you got to know Phyllis Cottle, and she was truly a pioneer back then in the ways that 
um, sexual assault victims owned their stories. She managed to do that in ways that were incredible. So, you know, I'm traumatized by what happened to her, right? Which I felt stupid for because, you know, she's suffering. But then, you know, she comes out and she shows this incredible courage and she became a symbol for me of female strength. So it was sort of like um, it ran the gamut of emotions during that time. It was very confusing. But I think ultimately the reason that Phyllis's story stuck with me through all these years, and I've covered a lot of stuff, you know, like 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, sure. right? Um, but it was Phyllis's story that stuck with me. Um, and I think the reason was is because she showed me that you can endure. You can be respected. You can own your own story. You do not need to be a perpetual victim. That was Phyllis. And you speak to this in the podcast. For those who weren't around at that time, the 80s were, you know, I, I tend not to think of, oh, that wasn't that long ago, but it, it was. And it was a different time, and particularly for women. And when it comes to sexual assault and these different things, it was drastically a different world than it is in 2023. Can you, you speak to that a little bit? Sure. In 1984 in Ohio, where this crime took place, um, it was legal for a husband to rape his wife. Um, date rape, that, that, that term had just been coined and um, it hadn't entered the popular lexicon yet. So if you were um, date raped, um, you, you were just laughed at because you were either kind of slutty or you were mad because he broke up with you or, and that stuff still happens today. Right. But back then it was really pronounced. It was very rare for a woman to share her story of sexual assault or even to admit that she had been assaulted. Um, Because, you know, eight times out of 10, you weren't believed, right? Rape protocol kits in Akron, Ohio, were just coming into use in 1984. Um, You know, there wasn't such a thing as DNA. So a lot of women, it was, you know, her word versus his. There was no DNA testing. So she was often not believed. Domestic violence wasn't taken very seriously. It was just the beginning of that. So I think the 1980s were very confusing for young women because we were learning from the feminists of the 70s, right? But we were entering into a conservative age, the age of Ronald Reagan. So there were many conflicting messages surrounding sexual freedom for young women and, and sexual assault, too. You totally blamed yourself. Yeah, it was uh, very unfortunate, the, the attitudes that, that were out there at that time. And Unfortunately, I think some of those still persist, but I think things have obviously improved. Um, yes, they have. In terms of the police, um, again, my view of the police, I'll just throw it out there because I'm not technically a journalist. So I don't pretend to be one. I think that there are many, many good police. I think there are some really bad apples that we have seen recently. Uh, by no means do I think we should uh, chuck out all the police and say they're all bad. Uh, but on the other hand, there there is room for improvement, of course. So in regard to the police and the way they handled this case, what are your thoughts? You know, it's really interesting. Um, back then, Akron had a terrible rape problem. I mean, they considered um, rapes 
the most prevalent crime and the crime that they most concentrated on, even over homicides. Huh. That's how bad the rape problem wow. was in Akron. So I think that um, at the same time, the Akron police only had two sexual assault officers to wow. serve a city of more than 200,000 people, right? So I think that those two detectives were incredibly overworked and they were also suffering psychological trauma from dealing with not only um, crimes against adults, but children, domestic violence cases, they dealt with all of it. So it was tough for them, for detectives. At the same time, just like it is today, um, the black community in Akron didn't really trust the police. So I think that when those detectives went out to investigate, they had to, I don't know, be ultra sensitive to that community because they needed that community's help. And that community came forward, by the way, and they were amazing. But the, the man who was suspected in Phyllis's attack also attacked Black women in very brutal ways. And those Black women, their cases were never fully investigated, either because um, these Black women didn't want to go through with their cases, or maybe there was something else. So I delve into that, too. It was a very, was a very complex time. Uh, the thing about Phyllis, though, she was such an unusual survivor. She, in essence, became a detective in her own case. So she, and this is what the detective told me, she made him feel more comfortable about investigating her case. And that was something you could not say about any other rape case that he investigated in the city of Akron. Now, uh, and again, I don't want to give too much weight, but Phyllis has passed. That's why we're talking about her in the past tense. Do you feel, again, nobody ever wants this to happen to anybody. It's just, just horrible. Do you feel, though, that what she did provided uh, a legacy far beyond what even she could imagine? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She, after um, after her case was resolved, she became an advocate for other sexual assault victims and also for blind victims. She testified before Congress. Um, she worked to strengthen um, the regulations surrounding the parole board so that violent criminals wouldn't get out early to hurt people again. And she continued to do that for decades. She never stopped until she got sick. And um, she died of cancer, I think, in 2015. But her legacy lives on in Akron. I will tell you, the um, it, it was just a few years ago that the man convicted of the crimes against her came up for parole. I saw that, yeah. And, yeah, and the Summit County Prosecutor's Office told me they got literally thousands of letters, emails, phone calls. So people definitely remember Phyllis. They still want to protect Phyllis. Um, her legacy does live on. Um, I want to ask you about her perspective on forgiveness. Now, as far as I'm concerned, something like this should not be forgiven. I mean, I'm the kind of person, if somebody knocks over a liquor store, if somebody steals from somebody, yeah, there's, there's room for rehabilitation and forgiveness. 
when somebody does something this heinous or they sexually assault a child or they murder someone in cold blood, not accidentally getting in a fight, somebody slipping and falling, but, but somebody kills somebody in, uh, in cold blood. And it's, it's, it's kind of like my view towards the death penalty. I'm, I'm generally not for it because we've seen where there have been convictions that have later been proven to be false. Now, and you see these things where people lose 20 years of their life and they get some kind of settlement, but they can never really get back in that time. If you give somebody the death penalty, you can't take that back, right? But the exception for me are the John Wayne Gacy's. I mean, people where it's an absolute slam dunk. They, I wish there was something in the... The, the legal system, like extra guilty, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Where it's not, yeah. it's not like, oh, well, it, yeah, it really seems like it's them. I mean, when it's slam dunk, we know it was them and what they did. This guy, I would even say there would have been a case for the, I know it's not by statute, but, but I almost feel like this is someone that deserved the death penalty for what he did. Oh, but God, what, you're not kidding. <laughs> but what about, <sighs> what about Phyllis? Did she have a place well, for I'll, forgiveness? I'll tell you a story. I'm going to, I'm going to give something away, Uh but I think it's an important thing to give away. So Phyllis was not a religious person. Mm -hmm. Um, When these horrible things were happening to her, she didn't pray. She didn't ask God for help. Uh, You know, no one was coming to her aid anyway. So why bother? She just didn't ask God. It never entered her mind because she wasn't a religious person. Um, After this guy was arrested, she, uh, she was sitting in her bedroom in the dark and crying because she's blind. She's just going to be a burden on her family. She can't go back to work. Like her life is over and she's only 44 years old. Sad. So she says, you know, what do I have to live for? So, you know, she has all these pills because she's still injured. So she, uh, she pours the pills in her hands and she makes her way to the bathroom and she trips and the pills go all over the floor. And she's like, oh, shit, I can't even do that right. And she's on the floor crawling around, feeling around for the pills. And she suddenly feels a hand on her shoulder. And somehow she knows it's God. And she sits up and she says, you know what, God, it's a little late. If you want me to live on, you're going to have to show me why. Make some kind of deal with me, God, or I'm going to take these pills and I'm going to end it. And she said suddenly she felt this warmth spread through her entire body. And she knew that she had a purpose in life from then on. And she located all the pills. She flushed them down the toilet and she went back to bed. And that next day, she decided to go public with what happened to her and become a champion and a symbol of strength for women all over the United States. So I would say in the forgiveness category, she never had another thought about him because he no longer mattered. I don't think she had vengeance in her heart from that day forward. I think that she was okay with it. Not okay with it. You know what I mean? But she was at peace with it. She never wished him death or or similar things to happen to him or anything like that. She was just an incredible person. And um, and I think that that whatever that was that happened to her in the bathroom that night changed her. Changed her. 
And she would often say, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, would I go back and change what happened to me? And she said, nope, I would not. I would not. Because it made me a better person. That's just remarkable. I mean, that is amazing to me that somebody can have that happen and have that attitude. She's better person than me, no question about it, no question about it. Me too. Oh, God, me too. (laughs) I I, I mean, can you speak to um, the techniques now used? I mean, of course, we've got DNA. We've got a lot of other things. But in terms of how far law enforcement has come in being able to track down these cases and solve them, the solvability of these kind of cases, because we think about murder all the time and a lot of the things that are the memes of the old TV shows, the Columbos and stuff wouldn't work now because of DNA and things like that. Can you speak to the advances in law enforcement in the cases of sexual assault that make this more, I guess, what is the word I'm looking for? More discoverable uh, than it was in Phyllis's right. day, although I know easier. They solved, yeah, mm-hmm. that they solved the case. Yeah, easier. Um, I think that in the past 40 years, a lot has changed when it, can, when it comes to investigating sexual assault cases, even how um, you go about interviewing the survivor. So in Phyllis's case, there were two male detectives, a nurse, and a family member. That, that was it. That would not happen today. There would be women in the room, female detectives or rape counselors or somebody like that who could support Phyllis more from that female perspective. Um, Although the male detectives did a great job, but Phyllis was an unusual survivor, right? So there would be a whole team of people who would be assembled today as opposed to back then. Like they would have everyone involved, the doctors, the nurses, the rape counselors, the medical team, the detectives, everybody would help in investigating this case. Also, DNA is so important because you just need a minuscule amount today. And back then it just wasn't dependable. It was like dumb science. It was just not applicable. Um, you know, they tried to do fiber evidence in the court and that didn't work. Um, police had to truly built a circumstantial case, which was not easy in Phyllis's case. So um, I would think today it would be so much. Oh, the other thing is to locate the house where Phyllis was raped. You know, you have Google Maps now. You can do satellite images. You can eliminate homes like online. And it's so much simpler than doing it by hand and creating graphs and, you know, charts and taking phone calls and you know, there's no central computer back then. So if you're looking for suspects who did similar crimes, you couldn't really depend on a, a, a central computer who could just spit those things out for you. You had to like, you know, go to your sources on the street, talk to your uh, partners in the criminal justice system. Yeah, what have you heard about? How, what about this guy? You know, it, it wasn't as easy back then as it is now. I don't want to say it's easy, but you know what I mean. Right. It's less difficult. I believe that when anybody takes on a major project like this, like this podcast is for you, I think in some ways it changes them or changes their perception about things. How has Blind Rage changed Carol Costello? Hmm. You know, it's definitely made me think about what detectives go through when they investigate these kinds of cases and how it affects them and their families. I never expected that to happen because, you know, 
I've always sort of distrusted the police. You know, from a journalist standpoint, you kind of go, meh, police. They don't, you know, we really don't get along anymore, journalists and police. So I think I I have a, a different perspective and looking at how Detective Contos took on this case and the psychological trauma that he suffered investigating these cases for so many years. Um, it also taught me a lot about how prosecutors and police work closely together. I mean, you always know, see it on like, you know, Law and Order SVU and you go, wow. <laughs> but, um, but in real life, it's even more interesting and um, more dynamic. That was really interesting because I talked to the prosecutors too, the prosecuting attorneys, the detectives who investigated the case, and then the Phyllis's family, and they all had to work together. So that it gave me a newfound respect for how difficult that can be and how easy to be, depending on the family, the survivor, the prosecutor, et cetera. Well, it's a great podcast. I have not listened to it all, but I'm in the process and I am <laughs> going to carry out the journey. In fact, it's really neat. You have actually tape, literally it was tape of when you interviewed Phyllis in the past. So you really have, you're the person to tell this story. So I guess the important question is, where can people find Blind Rage? Most Carol Costello presents Blind Rage, and you can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify. Um, I work with production, well, you know, Evergreen. You mm -hmm. can find it through there, the killer podcast, Evergreen. So wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Carol Costello presents Blind Rage. Oh. And I hope people listen because Phyllis's story, it, it just, it needs to be told. I agree. And it is very compelling. It's disturbing, but extremely compelling. Yeah. And I, I think everyone listening to this should definitely tune in. Carol, thank you so much. You've been so kind with your time today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, I respect all the work that you've done because I can't imagine how hard it is to do hundreds of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> we do our best. We do our best. And thank you again for being on the show. And we thank you for tuning into the crime scene. We appreciate it. I'm sure Carol would agree. Be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>